chapter of 1 Samuel. Um, so 1 Samuel, beginning in verse 1, says, There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord. And Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took up him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. They, then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he has lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Let me pray, pray again. Father God, uh, 
Just give us wisdom as we briefly look at your word. Help us to understand it rightly and to respond rightly to what we've understood. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Is your prayer life what you want it to be? Do you spend as much time as you would like to in prayer? Think of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says to pray without ceasing. And I wonder if you look at your prayer life and say, oh yeah, I pray without ceasing. I know I don't. What about the quality of your prayers? I often find myself praying the same things over and over again. And and sometimes you wonder, am I actually praying or am I just saying what I think I'm supposed to be saying right now? One of the best ways to deepen your prayer life is through scripture, either through through a, a formative prayer, like the Lord's Prayer is given by Jesus to, to show us the shape of our prayers, what the shape of our prayers can be, that he gives that in response to the disciples asking, Lord, teach us to pray, and he gives them this model prayer. We can also look to places like the Psalms, and you've got these prayers, these songs of prayer that are inspired by God himself, and we can let those shape our prayers. One of the other things we can do with scripture is look there, and especially looking at places where people pray, and we can gather reasons to pray. Why are they praying? And why do they pray what they pray? And that's what we're going to see this morning. So we're going to begin a series in 1 Samuel, and the plan is for this series to carry us into May, with a few short breaks like around Christmas and Easter. To do that is going to require us moving at a pretty good pace. I'm going to try to cover at least a chapter every week. Uh, so there are going to be things, details in the text that we kind of miss because to go that fast, you kind of have to have blurry vision to details in order to clearly see the whole. Um, as we look at 1 Samuel, we're going to have basically three primary lenses. And, and the first is just the historical. This book takes place at an important transition in Israel's history where they move from being this loosely knit group of tribes that are brought together from time to time by judges and transition to being a unified nation under a monarch, under a king. That that transition takes place in 1 Samuel and and it's one of the most important transitions in all of Israel's history. You know, that you've got the time where they are created with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then you've got them being brought out of Egypt and spending time in the wilderness and being brought into the promised land. And the next big transition in Israel's history is this transition to being a monarchy. This, so you've got this historical lens where we just see the transition that's taking place. The second is the theological truths, the, the things that we learn about God and what he's doing in the world as we look at 1 Samuel. And, and the big thing that happens in the two books of Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, is the establishment of David specifically as the king. The, the establishment of the Davidic line through which Jesus, the Messiah, will come. So in the next chapter in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 2, you have the establishment or the, the, prof, the prophetic prayer of Hannah where she says there's going to be an anointed one. And 2 Samuel closes with David praying about an anointed one, a Messiah who's going to come. That's what a Messiah means, is one who is anointed. So you've got this historical lens, this theological lens, and then just 
the practical lens of what, when we look at this book, do we, what do we see about God and what do we see about human beings that informs us how we ought to live today? And so as we go through week to week, we'll probably emphasize one of these more than, than the other on a particular week, but none of them can be divorced from each other. So the, the ultimate thing we want to know is who is God and, and what is he doing in the world, that theological truth. But we can't know that apart from what he's done in history, the, the historical aspect of it. And we want, we want to then respond rightly, right? We want to look at God and see who he is and how he's acted in the world and respond to him rightly with that practical application. So while we might emphasize one of these others at, on a particular week, they're all tied together. They're all married together. And that's true of all of the Bible. But just as we start for Samuel, I wanted to, to bring that out. Um, what do we know about background for 1 Samuel? Well, 1 and 2 Samuel were originally one book. They were divided about 200 B.C. as the Old Testament was being translated into Greek. Greek uses vowels, and Old Testament Hebrew did not use vowels. And so this one book wouldn't fit onto one scroll, and so they split it. And then we have 1 and 2 Samuel now. We don't know who wrote it. Uh, traditionally, the Talmud said that Samuel was the author, but Samuel dies in 1 Samuel 25, so he did not write the whole thing, obviously. Uh, there's mentioned in the books the Chronicles of Samuel, the Chronicles of Gad the prophet, the, pro- the Chronicles of Nathan the prophet. So there, there's probably at least these three sources and maybe some other sources that are brought together by a later author to give us this cohesive book, but we don't know who that is. We don't know exactly when they wrote. It was after the time of Solomon, but we don't know how late it could have gone. Um, so we don't know exactly who wrote it or when they wrote, probably sometime around the exile and the people being sent into Babylon. But again, we don't know for sure. The books are called the books of Samuel because Samuel is the first major figure that's talked about. The, the three primary characters in First and Second Samuel are Samuel, the last judge, and then the two kings that he anoints, Saul and David. And and as I said, the major theological theme in this book is the establishment of David as the king, the establishment of of the anointed one's line. So as we we read this book, we want to read it in its context, its grammatical context, its historical context, literary context. But but most importantly, we want to read it in its biblical context context. It, we, we don't want to miss the arrows that are pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 5 that all of scripture is meant to point to him. And so as we're looking at 1 Samuel, we'll want to see the numerous places that point forward to Christ. And we'll, we'll start seeing those really beginning next week in the second chapter. But back in 1 Samuel chapter 1. So that's kind of a, just a quick overview of the whole book. A summary of this chapter is we have Elkanah, who is an Ephrathite, and he's apparently a devout man. He goes up to worship when he's supposed to go up to worship. He loves his family. We see he, he's giving portions of the, the sacrificial meal to his, his family, to his wife, and to his children, and then to his other wife, Hannah, whom he loves extra. He gives her a double portion. So he's religiously devout. He takes care of his family. He seems like generally a pretty decent guy, one of his wives, Hannah, is barren. And this 
is a great distress to her. And in her distress, we read in this chapter that she cries to the Lord, asking for a son whom she promises to dedicate to the Lord. And God hears her request, he grants her request, and the chapter closes with Hannah fulfilling her vow by delivering her son up to the Lord. One one commentator, uh, Joyce Baldwin, she says, first the husband is mentioned, but the main character in the chapter is the first-named wife, Hannah, who was bold enough to believe that God would hear and answer her prayer for a son. The chapter records the answer to her prayer and ends with the fulfillment of her vow. Her motives may have been mixed, but her request was in line with the overarching will of God, who was preparing to bring into the world a man who would be his faithful representative and mouthpiece. This this book takes place... Again, as we said, at a a transition time, it begins in the time of the judges. If you look at that very first verse, verse 1, says there was a certain man. That that phrase, an identical phrase is found in Judges chapter 13, verse 1, to introduce us to to Samson's dad. And I think the, the author is tying our mind back into this is the time of the judges. Things are not right in Israel. Similar phrases are used to introduce people in Judges 17.1 and Judges 19.1. There's this certain man. Before we focus in on Hannah and her distress and her prayer, I want to just quickly touch on two, two difficulties in the text that popped up to me as I was reading. The first is a question that a lot of people ask when they read the Old Testament is is polygamy okay? So Elkanah is presented as this generally decent dude, but he's got two wives. And, and people will read the Old Testament, they'll look at people like Abraham and Jacob, and like, why do these guys get away with having multiple wives? Is God okay with that? There is no specific prohibition on polygamy in the Bible. But we should ask, if you're ever asked that question or you ever wonder it as you're reading, What is the positive teaching on marriage in the Bible? Genesis 1 and 2, God creates a man and a woman. Matthew 19, Jesus is reiterating that creation teaching on marriage, and he says, the two shall become one flesh. Well, that's only possible with a monogamous heterosexual union. Same thing Paul does in Ephesians 5 when he goes back to explain the analogy that human marriage is to Christ and the church, he he ties it back into that creation pattern of one man and one woman. And the other thing to notice is that every time you see polygamy portrayed in the Bible, from, from Abraham on through David and Solomon, it always goes badly. It never ends well. So when we're looking at how does God view something in the Bible? We shouldn't just look what is what is specifically do, don't do listed. But we should look at what are the results that we see as the narrative unfolds? How is it portrayed? And polygamy is always portrayed as a really dumb idea. The second thing is verse 9. Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And if you're thinking about your Old Testament chronology, you might be thinking, but the temple doesn't get built until 1 Kings chapters 6, 7, and 8. 
which is way after 1 Samuel chapter 1. So what, shouldn't there be a tabernacle here instead of a temple? Probably what's going on is we see in chapter 2 that there are living quarters attached to the tabernacle here. And so probably what they had set up at Shiloh were permanent structures like permanent doorposts, permanent living quarters attached to the tent of the Lord, the tabernacle. Uh, and so they could call it the temple or another way that word could be translated is palace. And so you probably have the tent, the tabernacle itself, where the people worshipped, but attached to it were these permanent structures that they referred to as as a temple structure. So, now that stuff's out of the way, I want to focus the rest of our time on the main character of this chapter, Hannah. And, And when we look at Hannah, we're going to see a model of prayer. And from her, we can, from her example, we can draw two basic reasons to pray. You probably could come up with more than this if you worked real hard at it, but I just want to look at two. We should pray because we're needy, and we should pray because God hears. First, pray because you're needy. Of the two, this might be the bigger holdup for many of us. We don't want to think that we're needy, but Hannah understands her need. Verse 2, Elkanah had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other was Peninnah, and Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. And down in verse 5, Elkanah loved Hannah, though the Lord had closed her womb, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. This is... This not having children is a source of deep sorrow for Hannah. It can be a source of deep sorrow for women today if they're barren, if they don't have children or can't have children. But it would be even more so for women in that day because their whole value, their worth, their identity as a human being was culturally tied up in their ability to produce children and especially to produce male heirs for their husband. If they couldn't do it, it's entirely possible that Hannah was taken as a first wife, and and just like Abram and Sarah, or Abraham and Sarah bring in Hagar as the backup plan, Peninnah might have been brought in because well Hannah can't have kids, so I guess I've got to get a wife who can have some kids. We don't know if that's exactly what happened, but but the fact remains that that here Hannah is, and though her husband obviously loves her, obviously cares about her. She can't, she, she does not feel as if she is fully sufficient. And the other wife, the rival wife, rubs that in her face, rubs it in hard that, that I can have kids and you can't. I've got all these sons and daughters and you can't have any. Owen, please quit playing with the water bottle. Because Hannah understands her need, though, she turns to the one who can address her need. She, she turns to the God who is in control over all things for help. Verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. 
Do you bring your deepest requests and desires to God? Or do you count on your own wisdom and your own capacity to see you through? And if you're counting on your own capacity, what lies about yourself do you tell yourself? Because to count on ourselves, we have to lie to ourselves to make us think that we actually can take care of all of our issues. Commentator Ralph Davis says, Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop, and prop like a, like a stage prop is what he's talking about, that God delights to use for his next act. This matter goes beyond the particular situations of biblical barren women. We are facing one of the principles of Yahweh's modus operandi. When his people are without strength, without resources, without hope, without human gimmicks, then he loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. Or we might say, God loves to answer the prayers of the needy. But that requires you admitting your need. 1 Peter chapter 5 says, To humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Pray because you're needy. The second thing we should see is that we should pray because God hears. First we can ask, who didn't hear Hannah? Verse 8, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? This is not like the typical man response to the situation. Well, yeah, I know you don't have any kids, but I'm not upset by that, and you've got me. I'm way better than ten sons. <laughs> I, was, I was listening to a guy teach from this passage, and he, he brought up the fact that a thinking man would not have said that because he would think about how women feel about their sons and know that he's probably not worth more to her than ten sons. But even if he were, he's pretty tone deaf to the situation. He looks at her sorrow and he just wants to fix it, get her happy. Like, can't you just kind of get past this? We've been dealing with this for a while. He does not hear her sorrow. He doesn't sympathize with her. He just says, come on, let's let's get over this. The second person who doesn't hear Hannah is the priest. So verse 12, after she's been pouring out her heart to the Lord, we read, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Eli, the priest, supposed to be the most spiritually attuned person in all of Israel, sees a woman with her with tears coming down her face and her mouth moving at the door of the temple, at the door of the tabernacle, and he thinks, oh, she must be drunk. I think it's interesting that Eli totally misses what's going on here. The fact that the most plausible explanation to him that someone coming to the temple and crying must be drunk is probably tied to who are the other priests. Verse uh, 3 tells us that that. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord there. Well, in chapter 2, we're going to meet Hophni and Phinehas, and these guys are train wrecks. They're stealing 
food that's supposed to be sacrificed. They're taking the fat that, when they should be letting the fat burn off. They're sleeping with women at the doors of the temple. They, these guys are making a, a travesty of the worship of God. And, and so if that's who the priests are, well, I guess it makes sense to see someone crying at the temple and think, well, they must be drunk. Nobody's here praying that hard. The, the two people in this story who should most understand Hannah, her husband and the priest, don't hear her. But she goes to the Lord with her petition. And I find verses 10 and 11 fascinating where she is saying, O oh Lord, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. It, it drew my mind back to Genesis, where God asks Abraham to take this only son, this son whom he loves, up on the mountain and sacrifice him. And, and it's a different situation here. She's promising to, to bring him to be the Lord's servant. But it's almost the same where she is preemptively saying, if you'll give me a son, God, I'll give him back to you. I, I'm not just coming to get a son to, to cling to him, I'll give him back. Lord, I just want to have a son. Again, Ralph Davis says, She addresses Yahweh of hosts, cosmic ruler, sovereign over every and all power, and assumes that the broken heart of a relatively obscure woman in the hill country of Ephraim matters to him. After Eli's corrected, in verse 17, he blesses Hannah. He says, God grant you your petition. It's like he's still trying to just kind of get her out of the court. Like, get out of here, you crazy emotional woman. You know, okay, hopefully God will listen to you. Get, go away. While his blessing feels almost perfunctory, Hannah is still comforted. Verse 18 says her face was no longer sad. She's not just comforted. Verse 19 tells us that she is remembered. They, early, they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. God's remembrance in the Bible is not just a matter of recalling something, but it's, it's a matter of him paying special attention to or lavishing special care on someone. In Psalm 8, verse 4, that same word is rendered, are mindful of, so... What is, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you remember him? The son of man that you care for him? The, to remember and to care for are used as synonyms in Psalm 8. You might think of Genesis chapter 30 where, where God remembers Rachel and gives her a child. You should turn to God in prayer because you're needy. And you can gladly turn to God in prayer because he hears your prayers. Child of God, God hears your prayers. And he remembers his children. As the hymn says, Are you weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. What we find in the end of this chapter is Hannah fulfilling her vow to the Lord. She waits until the child is weaned, and then she brings him before God in Shiloh. Verses 27 and 28, we read, For this child I prayed, 
and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Have you made commitments to God that you are afraid to follow through on? Maybe it's praying more often for a loved one, sharing the gospel with a neighbor, or giving sacrificially to the church or to missions. The example of Hannah shows us that prayer turns to God for our every need and gladly receives to him with an open-handed freedom. We don't have to cling to the gifts that he gives desperately like they might get away if we know that we've received them from the giver of all good things. The father of lights, James 1.17 says, from whom all good gifts come. All good things come from the God whom we serve, and so we can trust him and we can turn to him in prayer. Let's pray right now. Father God, would you help us to take hold of that truth that we can always trust you, that, that we are needy. Help us to, to humbly see our need, that, that we are not sufficient on our own, that we desperately need you. Would you open our eyes to that and cause us then to turn to you and receive your good blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.